What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the hour, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, Melina Abdullah, will talk about the LAPD and how they showed up in force at her house twice in the week since she filed a lawsuit against them over a similar incident last year. We call it swatting. We also call it retaliation. And The Nation is launching a new podcast called Going For Broke. It's personal stories about how the pandemic made it a lot harder for many people to pay their rent and cover the electric bill and get through the month. The new podcast is created along with the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. It's hosted by Ray Suarez, who's best known for his work on NPR and PBS. It launches on October 18th, and we'll speak with him later in the hour. But first... What's the best strategy for the Democrats in 2022 when the historical odds are against them holding the House in 2024, which right now is not looking good for the House, the Senate, or the presidency? For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation. We reached him today at home in Madison. Hi, John. Hey, John. It's good to be with you. Well, the New York Times on Sunday ran a huge piece by Ezra Klein, which starts out by declaring that Democrats are on the precipice of an era without any hope of a governing majority, close quote. They can win a majority of the vote, but still lose control of Congress and the White House. That's because of the, of course, undemocratic bias of the Electoral College, the even more undemocratic bias of the Senate, combined with Republican gerrymandering, which is underway right now. The coming year may be the last chance the Democrats have of passing legislation for a long time, maybe a decade. So what to do? One notable strategy for fighting the odds comes from this strategist uh, that Ezra Klein recommends named David Shore. He says the data on public opinion and electoral geography are telling us what the Democrats must do to, quote, avoid congressional calamity next year. Uh, here's the argument in brief. To hold on to the House and the Senate, Democrats need to win states that lean Republican. Swing voters in those states are not liberals, according to opinion polls. They do not see the world the way progressives like 
we do. They are working class people. They didn't go to college, but polling does tell us what they care about. They care a lot about prescription drug prices. They do not care about climate change. They do not want to defund the police. They do not want amnesty for undocumented immigrants. So the Democrats should not talk about climate change. The Democrats should not talk about reforming the police. And the Democrats should not talk about immigration. They should talk about bread and butter economic issues. That's the only way they might be able to save their House and Senate majorities in 2022. What do you think? Well, it suggests, if, if we accept the theory that's being put out here, that a, a, a lot has changed from 2020 to 2022. Because in 2020, Democrats ran on climate change, reforming the police, immigration reform, as well as some, some smart economics, uh, and responding responsibly to the COVID crisis. And they won the presidency, the Senate, in the House. Let me just add, they won the presidency by the largest number of votes in the history of the country, the largest margin in the history of elections. And they flipped the states of Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, three traditional battleground states among the Great Lakes as well as two states that had until very recently been considered to be over in the Republican column. And notably, in those five states in 2018, two years before, running campaigns that had respect for climate, racial justice, respect for immigrants and immigration reform, as well as these economic issues, Democrats won the governorship of Wisconsin and the Senate seat, they won the governorships of Pennsylvania and Michigan. It's arguable that they won the governorship of Georgia, but had a, an incredibly messed up election down there. And they won a Senate seat out of Arizona. So with all due respect to this theory, we've just had two election cycles, one in which the Democrats in 2018 had you know, massive gains at the state level and at the congressional level, a second of which in which Democrats took the presidency with the largest vote ever for a presidential candidate and beat an incumbent president with the highest percentage of the vote of any Democratic candidate since Franklin Roosevelt beating Herbert Hoover in 1932. I'm not sure that I would scrap the entire plan <laughs> because a, a guy who's very active on Twitter says that he's found data that points in another direction. And I would add that Joe Biden and progressives, starting with Bernie Sanders, do not need to be told that bread and butter economic issues are crucial to political campaigns. That's what Bernie changed the conversation about what is possible to achieve on the economic front with his primary challenges. Joe Biden has pretty much endorsed a lot of the progressive program on economic issues. That's what the reconciliation bill overwhelmingly is economic issues. So this is not news to the Democrats, and it's certainly not news to progressive Democrats, and it's not news to Joe Biden that bread and butter economic issues are winning issues for lots of voters in the middle. You're right. Uh, if you look at how Democrats have advanced in recent years, 
you don't have to jettison some issues to talk about others. What you should do is have a, a smart mix of issues that speaks to your base, draws people out to the polls, that does you know, energize and excite people who might not have historically voted for you and bring some folks across. When I look at the Build Back Better agenda, you know, it's the, the proposal that's out there right now, you know, look at the core things that are in it. Vision, hearing, and dental for the elderly via Medicare. Family and medical leave. An expansion of caregiving for families that have elderly members of the family or people with disabilities who may need care at home or who may need some care in a, a quality community facility near their home. Free community college or at least lower cost community college for working class kids. Uh, and on the climate, a response to the climate that puts people to work in jobs that deal with physical crises that we are having right now uh, in California with fires, in coastal states with flooding, you know, that responds to a host of climate issues with good paying quality jobs. Every one of those things pulls through the roof. And when you ask people, well, should that be done equitably? Should it be done fairly? Should we make sure that we respond to historic racial and social injustices in this country? Again, polling shows people say, yes, it should. That's a good thing. If Democrats were to adopt the approach of saying, you know, we only care about economic issues now. That's all we care about. I think they could run the real risk of, of losing support. Nobody's going to, you know, nobody who's been voting Democratic in 2018, 2020 is going to come along and say, oh, well, I, you know, Democrats aren't talking about immigration and racial justice, so I'm going to vote Republican. That isn't going to happen. But what could happen is that people who came to the polls in 2018 came in 2020 because they believed the Democratic Party was actually ready to stand up and do some major fundamental things in this society that need to be done, uh, might start to question whether they can count on the Democratic Party. One other thing is there is also something that goes beyond specific issues to the style of your, of your politics, to the style of what you seek to do. You know, we often reference back to Roosevelt and, you know, I mean, Franklin Roosevelt won four presidential elections and won every midterm. His party won every midterm election during that period. He passes away. Harry Truman becomes president. Truman pulls his punches, starts not going as big and bold. There's no question they even referred to him as kind of moving the New Dealers out and the Wall Streeters in. Uh, and he loses the Congress in 46. Uh, they do Taft-Hartley, terrible setbacks. Uh, struggles back and does win the presidency. But, I mean, a terrible setback there. Then you fast forward through. Well, yeah, Johnson was very aggressive and did a lot of big deal stuff. He held the presidency and held his midterm. Carter comes along, pulls a lot of punches in the early years of his presidency. There's real divisions in the Democratic Party. He goes much more toward the center, loses a lot of seats in 78, loses the presidency in 80. Clinton comes along, uh, works closely with Wall Street on NAFTA and a whole bunch of other issues, dials down New Deal programs, uh, rejects the progressive agenda, rejects the big, bold agenda, loses control of Congress in 94. Obama comes along, forced by moderates in his own party and centrists and even conservatives to do a smaller uh, response to the Great Recession and does a Affordable Care Act, which has a lot of great stuff in it, but didn't have... Did not have the public option, which was so important to building support for it. Exactly. And what happens in 2010? Republicans sweep. In 2014, Republicans end up doing even better. So well, in fact, Republicans get so much power uh, that Obama's not even able to get his 
final Supreme Court justice a hearing in the Republican Senate. The lesson from history is that you, when you have power, you go big, you go bold, you address a host of economic, social, and racial justice issues. And in doing so, you convince people that your being in power matters. And thus, they get excited to come and vote to keep you in power. And if you don't do that, that's a much bigger danger, I think, than, than what uh, some people fear of talking too much about immigration or racial justice. Now, it is true that if you ask working class whites who are in the middle and either are not voting or, or uh, undecided about what they're going to do, if you ask them whether they want to abolish the police, they do not want to abolish the police. But again, this is not, you don't have to tell Democratic candidates, don't run on abolishing the police. Not a single member of Congress, the House or the Senate advocates abolishing the police. Look at AOC's website. She doesn't say abolish the police. She doesn't say defund the police. She says reform policing, make it more responsive to community needs, shift our priorities to preventing violent crime. Abolish the police as a political issue is strictly a Fox News right-wing Republican lie about the Democrats. It's not, it's not a very effective lie. I mean, this is the interesting thing. I'll give you one case study from my own state of Wisconsin. In uh, the summer of 2020, a Kenosha, Wisconsin police officer shot Jacob Blake, yeah. a black man, in the back seven times as Jacob Blake was entering his car uh, with his children in the car. It did cause a, a, an outcry, an uproar. I mean, there was, there was a really intense protesting in Kenosha. There's no question. A uh, white vigilante came in and shot and killed two people on the street. Uh, there were fires. It was, it was an intense moment. There's no question of that. Donald Trump decided that he was going to exploit all of these issues, right, and say the Democrats are running to get rid of the police and the Democrats are doing all this horrible stuff and, and made Kenosha central to his address to the Republican National Convention, came and campaigned in Kenosha on the eve of the election, literally. I mean, made it so central to everything he did. Joe Biden got 2% more of the vote in Kenosha in 2020 than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. And the Kenosha state representatives who have been supportive of economic and social and racial justice, who faced opponents who tried to exploit these issues, won re-election with overwhelming victories. I mean, I'm not trying to paint some sort of naive picture. I know that these issues can be, they can be difficult, they can be challenging. But the fact of the matter is to simply assume that the Republicans are going to go out there and they're going to exploit these issues and put Democrats in a corner. And if Democrats stand up and ever say the right thing, they're going to be defeated is false. It is proven so by the example of Kenosha. And I will and I will tell you that Kenosha, yeah, it went through a lot of lot of tough times. It's still going through tough, but it remains a democratic and frankly, a reasonably progressive democratic city. And one last thing that people who study the data on opinion polling are preoccupied with is why many Latinos voted for Trump in 2020. Now, this overlooks the larger fact that most Latinos did not vote for Trump. But it is true that in Florida, exiles from Latin America and from Cuba 
Latinos did vote for Trump. And it is true that there were a couple of counties in South Texas along the Rio Grande where a majority of Latinos seemed to have voted for Trump. But overall, Latinos have been strongly anti-Trump. Nationwide, Biden got 66% support among Latinos in the national exit poll, which is actually one point more than Hillary got. So there has not been a massive shift of Latinos to Trump, and it would be a mistake to change the political strategy because of what is going on in a few places. It, we do want to understand what happened in those places. We but. study it, and, and there's, a lot, there's a lot in play in both of those places. Joe Biden wasn't going to win Texas, and he wasn't going to win Florida. That shift along the Rio Grande and in some of the areas around Miami and Orlando, uh, that, did not, that did not cost Joe Biden those states. When you look at the votes out of Georgia and Arizona and Wisconsin, Milwaukee, which has a large Latinx community, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, what you see is that if Biden had you know, really downplayed some of the issues he was talking about and, and had not mobilized there, uh, then a loss of the Latinx vote might well have cost him those states. So at the end of the day, you step back and you say, okay, what's the measure of success or victory? What's the right way to go or not? I would say flipping five states that voted for your opponent in the previous election and winning the presidency with the highest vote ever for a presidential candidate and with the best percentage for a Democrat since Roosevelt beat Herbert Hoover in 1932, I would think I'd go with that measure rather than the measure that says, yeah, there's some there's some challenges and issues you, you've got to address down in South Texas and in some parts of Florida. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thanks, John. It's always an honor to be with you. Melina Abdullah, co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, has been targeted by the LAPD again, twice last week in swatting incidents where large numbers of police officers show up at her house with guns drawn. We call that harassment. For that story, we turn to Melina Abdullah herself. In addition to being co-founder and a leader of Black Lives Matter LA, she's also professor and former chair of Pan-African Studies at Cal State LA. Recently, she's been a leader in the fight for ethnic studies in K through 12 schools and in universities. And she was part of the historic victory that made ethnic studies a requirement in the LA public schools. She's also served on the LA County Human Relations Commission. She's appeared on MSNBC, CNN, ABC, PBS, BET, lots of other places. Melina Abdullah, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Well, tell us what happened with you in the LAPD last week. So the day after we announced our lawsuit against LAPD for a swatting that took place in August of 2020, the very next day, police showed up at the home of my neighbor, claiming that I had been swatted again. Um, and then later in conversation with a journalist, they said, well, this time it wasn't about a kidnapping. It was actually, they got, they alleged they got a call from my son, who's only 11 years old um, and would have been in school at the time and has no cell phone of his own. Um, they alleged that he called and said that I OD'd on pills. 
Um, of course, the only pills I pop are vitamin C and elderberry and black seed oil, right? So okay. there would be no overdosing. But if there were an overdose, I would think that the right unit to dispatch would be paramedics and ambulance. Why yes. would police show up at the home of my next door neighbor if I were in need of medical care? That made absolutely no sense. And so as we were complaining about that, during a our weekly end police associations rally, and I think we can have plenty to talk about about why police associations are particularly problematic, given what LAPD is, but also given what's happening nationally and um, the FBI raid on the New York Police Association, right? Um, <clears throat> so we've been protesting police associations every single Wednesday for about eight months now. And um, as we were doing our weekly rally, my daughter who was with me got a FaceTime call from a neighbor and police surrounded my home again with assault rifles dressed in SWAT gear. Um, and they claim that they got an emergency call that I was kidnapped and being held for ransom when all they really needed to do is literally look out their front window and as they were surrounding my house, I was in front of theirs. Mm. And the original swatting incident, August 2020, we talked about that here shortly afterwards, but remind us about that one. That one was really scary. That one was the most traumatic and violent of all of them. So in August 2020, I was preparing actually for a press conference um, at Cal State LA about the new College of Ethnic Studies, which we helped to initiate. And we were working towards some things there and I was getting ready and um, a friend of mine, a comrade, um, often makes sure that I'm safe and travels with me to things. And so um, his name is Billion. And um, my children were at home because it was still quarantine, right? Mm -hmm. So children were doing online learning and billion comes up and he says and we heard a little bit of something happening outside but billion comes up rings the bell comes inside and goes there is a million police around your house and Ooh. i thought it was because i live in a pretty active area um sometimes things come into my neighborhood into the residential space and I thought it was just something happening over on Crenshaw that had spilled into the neighborhood, right? And I said, don't worry about it, it's not for us. And I'm actually on the phone doing something else, trying to get, you know, get ready. And then I kind of glance out the front window and notice police with riot gear or SWAT gear on. And as I approach the window, two of the officers, which were originally across the street, and I could hear a helicopter overhead run towards my window with assault rifles pointed at me. So I turn out of, you know, the window space where they could see me and immediately like look at Billion and say, I think we got to go on social media. So I go on Instagram live and decided that if they kill me, they're not going to kill me where nobody sees. And yeah. so... Um, went and got my kids, got my kids kind of um, barricaded in a, a room that was as far away from where police were as possible, and then decided to come out. 
Um, they yelled, everyone at my address, come out with your hands up. So I had my phone in my hand. I opened the door to the front door and I yell out, I have a phone in my hand. It's just a phone. Um, thinking about people like Corinne Gaines and uh, Stefan Clark and um, wind up coming out and there were dozens of officers all with assault rifles um, trained on me and trained on my house. And my thought as a mom is what every mom's thought would be, which is let me get them away from my house because my kids are inside, you know? And so the relief was, it was extremely traumatic. The relief and beauty in it was though, because I feel like we always should look for that, is that what I couldn't see from my front window is to my left were dozens of neighbors in the street also filming. Um, And one of my neighbors, a black father ran up and met me at my walkway and um, put his body in front of my body as I was walking towards the police, his wife then joined and put her body next to me and, um, you know, literally kept me safe. We say we have a saying in Black Lives Matter, we keep us safe. Um, My neighbors literally in all three incidents and especially in most profoundly in the first one, my neighbors kept me safe and alive. Yeah, it's it's a horrifying story. And yeah, you've got some wonderful uh, neighbors. And then just two weeks ago, you sued the city of L.A. and the LAPD over this swatting incident. Tell us about that lawsuit. That's right. I mean, uh, we did get the 911 call. So we did get the tape from the August 2020 swatting. The caller clearly says that he's targeting me because I'm with Black Lives Matter. And we know that the LAPD did not have to respond the way that it did. They did not have to um, attempt to terrify us. They did not have to point assault rifles at us. They knew what it was. So LAPD was absolutely complicit in the swatting, in the traumatization, in the wounds that my children now carry. And so we filed a lawsuit Um, against them for their role in that. And it was how many days after that, that the second swatting incident took place? It was the very next day. The very next day. Uh, Meanwhile, you've been calling on Mayor Eric Garcetti to fire the LAPD Chief Michael Moore. Tell us about the case against Chief Moore. It's astounding to us that Chief Michael Moore has been able to get away with what he's been able to get away with. It's astounding that a police chief who detonates explosives in a South Central community would be left on the force. This was an incident where the LAPD found a huge cache of fireworks right before the 4th of July, 40 pounds, and they detonated them, which caused a massive explosion that destroyed part of a South LA neighborhood. It damaged or destroyed 13 businesses, 22 houses, and 37 vehicles, and it injured 17 people, two of whom later died. It killed Ozzie Hutchins and uh, Ramon Reyes, and 
he's been left on the force, right? Um, leading the force. We know that Michael Moore is also responsible for the beatings and abuse of protesters in the summer of 2020 at a level that is really unparalleled by any other city. And instead of being um, fired, he's advocating for tens of millions more dollars to LAPD and the city's leadership is considering it. Um, and when we think about people being killed by LAPD, what Michael Moore does is put out a solid PR campaign and then um, really enable the abuse of our people. And so we have a petition that has been circulating, um, tinyurl.com slash firelapdchiefmore, tinyurl.com slash firelapdchiefmore. And it outlines this and so many other reasons, right? Um, or these and so many other reasons. And then of course, when we think about the swatting and targeting of activists, including me, um, that's another reason for Michael Moore to go. Just to put it in context, I did consult with uh, movement elders over the last couple of weeks. And I said, you know, I've heard of people being swatted before. Other folks in my um, orbit have been swatted, right? But I have never heard of people being swatted routinely. And when I talked with folks, no one else had either. No one else had heard of someone who's been swatted three times. I've been swatted three times in the span of just about a year. Yeah. And, you know, LAPD bears some responsibility in that. And I believe in shopping from the top. So Michael Moore has to go. On a brighter note, you and Black Lives Matter LA and a lot of the rest of us campaign to elect a new progressive district attorney for LA County. And we succeeded George Gascone. He's now the DA of the county with the largest population in the country, 10 million people in the largest jail system in the world. He's done some good things since taking office. Let's talk about what George Gascone has already done and what we need him to do next. Yeah, well, George Gascone has lived up to 90% of his campaign promises. Um, he has ushered in progressive justice reform. He has refused to try children as adults. He has said that, you know, we are not putting people on death row. It's costly and it's unethical, right? He said, we're gonna end sentencing enhancements, which means people will be prosecuted for the crimes they're actually accused of, not for the neighborhoods in which they live. Um, these are all great things. We know that at least 14 officers are being charged with crimes or investigated for crimes as a result of Gascon saying, you know, police need to be held accountable. So we know that the terrible police department in Torrance, California, where Christopher DeAndre Mitchell um, was murdered, um, two Torrance police officers are being prosecuted for hate crimes, for spray painting swastikas on cars, right? We know that a third Torrance police officer is being prosecuted for shooting a man with disabilities inside of a mall. Um, and we know that there's many more investigations and uh, uh, LA County Sheriff's deputies are also being investigated out of the East LA station where we know the Bandidos Sheriff's Gang comes from and where Sheriff Alex Villanueva comes from himself. So Gascon is doing um, really important work and we'd like to see him move on the prosecution of police who kill our people. So when he took office, 
Um, under Jackie Lacey, 648 people, his predecessor, 648 people had been killed by police on her watch. We know that there's new studies that um, estimate the undercount of people being killed by police at about 55%. So, yeah. you know, we know that this is also an undercount. Um, but Gascon so far has not prosecuted any of the police who've killed our people, even though he's pledged to. And so we need a little movement um, and collaboration and support from the County Board of Supervisors. We know that there are assistant um, um, district attorneys, um, deputy district attorneys who are refusing to um, move what Gascon is trying to move. We know that he's trying to hire deputy district attorneys who would be able to move these police prosecutions. But because of the civil service requirements in the county, it's been very difficult for him to get new folks in and to kind of hold to account even the DAs who are supposed to be working for him. So we need everybody to, to help make sure that um, murderous police are held accountable. Melina Abdullah. The best way I know to keep up with her is to follow her on Twitter, at DocMellyMel. That's it, DocMellyMel on Twitter and Instagram. Melina, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. Take care. Next up, the pandemic made it a lot harder for working class people to pay their rent, cover the electric bill, or make three weeks worth of money stretch to the end of the month. People lost jobs, lost their homes, and sometimes lost the narrative thread of their lives. Now, the nation is launching a new podcast, along with the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, featuring personal stories of people who prevailed despite the challenges. The host is Ray Suarez, best known for his work on NPR and PBS. He hosted NPR's Talk of the Nation for six years and then was a senior correspondent for the PBS NewsHour for more than a decade. In his more than 30-year career in the news business, he's also worked as a radio reporter in London and Rome and as Los Angeles correspondent for CNN. We reached him today at a conference in Philadelphia. Ray Suarez, welcome to the program. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, you've often said that too much American journalism is a story told by wealthy people to middle-class people about poor people, and you aim to change that in the Going For Broke podcast. Well, you know, we have come through this terrible national experience, and feeling the downdraft, along with everybody else, were people who are pretty good writers and storytellers and self-aware enough to be guides to the experience of downward mobility. And the Economic Hardship Reporting Project has been working with those reporters and storytellers and trying to get their work published, trying to get them known and seen and heard. And we thought that this podcast would be uh, excellent on a couple of levels. We could talk about what the pandemic showed us about the state of America's safety net. A lot of holes in it. <laughs> a pretty wide mesh it's, uh, it's woven with. And also give us a chance to highlight the work of these, uh, these terrific people. So uh, opportunity 
and a good cause came together and the nation has been uh, great partners and it's going to be a wonderful series. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited about it because it also gives me a chance to work on that conviction that so often we talk about poor people rather than allowing them to talk for themselves. And on the new Going for Broke podcast, you also talk about yourself. That's something I don't think you ever did on the PBS NewsHour or on NPR's Talk of the Nation. Why the change? Well, you know, you're right. Uh, I'm not one of those reporters who's very confessional. I rarely use the word I. I wasn't even sure the capital I key worked on my, <laughs> on my laptop. Uh, but I had experienced some hard times as well and came to the attention of the EHRP when I wrote about it. And first, the company I was, going, I was working for at the time, Al Jazeera America, went out of business, leaving me out of work for the first time in more than three decades. And then I found it was almost impossible to get work. Uh, I have a pretty good resume and a pretty good track record. And pretty good recommendations from the people I've worked with and for in the past, but the ageism in the business was pretty daunting. On top of that, I was diagnosed shortly after with cancer, yeah. and the two things together, the extended unemployment and the really life-threatening illness, um, worked together to give me this kind of epiphany about this experience. And you're healthy now? I'm fine now, yes. I'm in remission or as my oncologist likes to say, cancer-free, meaning, <laughs> you know, that could change in, in future, and I'm very well aware of that. It changes your ideas about your mortality, but for the moment, I'm doing great. Well, let's talk a little bit about the people who are featured on the Going For Broke podcast. One of them is Lisa Ventura. She's a social worker who worked her way up to something like white-collar security. What's her story? She grew up in Washington Heights, uh, the big Dominican neighborhood in the far northern corner of Manhattan Island, and, you know, started supporting herself as a teenager. She propelled herself into a white collar profession, uh, middle class respectability and security, a house in New Jersey. And then the pandemic started to fray all of that. First, her husband was sent home from his job. The kids were sent home from school. Then her largely Spanish-speaking Dominican immigrant father uh, was furloughed from his job as an auto mechanic and had trouble filling out the various forms you need to fill out to get unemployment. Now, normally this kind of thing wouldn't be a problem. A lot of us help our parents. But uh, Lisa's father had left the family when she was very young. And they had had a very troubled relationship over the years. And here he was coming in back into her life almost as a client, while she was also trying to get her mother through the pandemic as well. And it was an illustration to her of just how much a person can take when they have to, uh, but also gave her a chance to reflect on uh, the unpredictability, the unpredictable nature of these kinds of things. When your father, who you've not seen enough of since you were a kid is now suddenly a not for hire client he's <laughs> you're not getting paid but you are taking care of him and you also talk on the going for broke podcast with 
Lori Yearwood. She was a reporter for the Miami Herald who became homeless. And this was not for a story that she was working on. Tell us what happened to her. Well, she had a, a, multi, a set of calamities befall her. After she was laid off from the Herald, her house burned down and she just, you know, had no means of support, no partner and ended up uh, living on the streets was eventually arrested for trying to wash in a in a nearby body of water, uh, found that sleeplessness is the scourge, is the curse of homeless people, and tells a moving, textured, beautiful story about how difficult it is to get a good night's sleep when you don't have a roof over your head. We as a society, uh, charities, churches, provide various kinds of places to sleep for homeless people, but they aren't really places where you can sleep in a way that allows you to do the kind of work you need to get out of being homeless. And it becomes a, a self-perpetuating cycle. And she tells a wonderful story about that. And she's gotten back on her feet and she's writing again and publishing again. And uh, it was a, a great experience to have this story from her. It's a beaut. And then on the Going for Broke podcast, you also feature a guy named, named John Koopman. He reported on the Iraq war for the San Francisco Chronicle. How come he ended up on Going for Broke? Well, like a lot of our uh, storytellers in the series, he grew up working class, joined the military early, right out of high school, and then used GI benefits to go, go to college. He saw some appeal as, uh, in a life as a reporter, uh, worked in a series of jobs until he got to the San Francisco Chronicle. After all, a 150-year-old newspaper in a great old newspaper town, San Francisco. He covered the Iraq War, and he brought his military experience to bear on his reporting, got a lot of attention for the paper, and eventually was um, doing quite well there in the big, big layoffs in America's newspapers that followed, he lost his job just like thousands of other people did. He became a manager in a strip club, a bartender, and then finally said, what am I doing? You know, he was chasing his tail, trying to hang on in San Francisco, one of the most expensive places in America to live. And he finally went back to his home region in Nebraska to live near his mother who was ill, uh, started working as a bartender there and is okay. He's secure, he owns a house, he uh, has some satisfaction in his life and looks on everything that happened to him, the great arc of his life as just a, a great story and one that he can tell well. Well, let me say a word about the nation's partner in this podcast, the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. I've been a fan of theirs for a long time. The project was created in 2012 by Barbara Ehrenreich. It supports journalism about poverty and economic insecurity and tries to put a human face, as you are doing, on all of the uh, political uh, prob issues of our day. Their stories appear in big media outlets ranging from the New York Times to The Guardian, and they also have an initiative to support local publications with stories that appear in places like The Mountain Outlaw in Big Sky, Montana, 
the Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi, and the Des Moines Register. They win lots of awards, lots. And the goal, of course, is to change the systems that perpetuate economic hardship. The new podcast, Going for Broke, launches October 18th from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and The Nation. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The host is Ray Suarez. Ray, thanks for taking on this great project, and thanks for talking with us today. A great pleasure to brag about this work and the EHRP, and thanks again to The Nation uh, for having us a as a partner. It's been a, a great ride, and uh, I hope people do take a chance on this series. I think they're going to come away really nourished by it. October 18th, the Going For Broke podcast. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Music